Well, good morning, church. Well, thank you for your singing. For uh, Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, admonishing and teaching one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another with thankfulness together in your heart. And uh, thank you for encouraging me by the way you sang that and by encouraging the person next to you. I also want to thank you from uh, myself and also from my wife for uh, the gracious welcome that you have given us. Uh, we feel like it's home already, and so we are grateful for the way that you have embraced us. Uh, oh, a special thanks to David, who not only handled the interview process, but David also uh, took care of our physical relocation as well. Uh, we were uh, in the process of moving here, and Chris Nichols, who is a master at administration, was handling all the details of our move and uh, we got a call from David one day, and, and David, uh, who is, um, well, he's not a master of administration, perhaps, but David uh, said, hey, man, uh, I just want to let you know that Chris is in the Ukraine, and I'm the head of your transition team now. And uh, I s- mentioned that to Leslie right away. She was sitting right beside me, and uh, she just said, oh, no, uh, we're never going to get to Birmingham. And so I relayed that back to David, and David being the competitive person that he is, took that as a personal challenge. And so from there out, I was getting texts, emails, phone calls, all straight from David. Uh, He was comparing moving estimates. I mean, I I expected when two men in a truck showed up at my door for David to be one of the men in the truck. And uh, But David has handled it well, and so uh, he's an okay preacher, but if you need relocation services, he's your man. And so I would recommend him without doubt. He asked me if I would to share just for a moment before we begin that uh, what I will be doing and what we hope to be doing here at Brook Hills, I'm the pastor of biblical training here, and look, hopefully, by God's grace, to begin to establish a training center for biblical studies here at Brook Hills in the context of the local church. And we've talked about how we do not want to be absolutely dependent. The seminary has a place, but we don't want to be absolutely dependent upon that. And so we want to be able to train people here in this local body uh, to serve the body of Christ here and all the way around the world. And so we are working toward that. And I hope that in the fall that we will be able to begin offering some classes, some of them perhaps degree track and some of them non-degree track. So there is something for everyone. And so I'd encourage you to sort of keep your ears open. Listen, uh, we will try by God's grace to begin doing some things in the fall, whether that's small group leader training, you just like some training in, in theology, New Testament, Old Testament, whatever, or perhaps some degree courses. We will begin offering those as well, hopefully in the fall. So Thank you for your patience and know that we are sort of working toward that. Enough preliminaries, all right? Let's look to the Word of God. I want you to take, it, take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at the end of Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And then we will also look at all of chapter 5, and I hope you'll see at the close of our service, at least through it, throughout it, why we want to bring all four of these sort of separate stories, what seem to be separate stories, bring them all together, and why we're going to read all of this, mor- this morning as we look at uncleanliness next to godliness, uncleanliness next to godliness. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. You may have a different translation of God's Word, but follow along. Along with me, if you would, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Mark says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the, wa- and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That even wind and sea obey him. 
Mark chapter 5, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and immediately, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by, the, by, the, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, mind and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better but rather worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if, e if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. All flesh is grass, and all their glory is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the words of our God will stand forever. 
And knowing, Father, that we are but grass, and that we will fade away, that we will die, and that your word will stand forever. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, you know, looks can be deceiving. This is my family. These are my three children as of now. And uh, you can see Rachel there on the right. She is seven years old. And uh, the one with the oversized shirt on is Jonathan. He's on the left there. And the one in the middle uh, that kind of looks like she's doing the hokey pokey, that is uh, Abigail. She is two years old. And uh, this is sweet Abigail, all right? This is uh, hair combed, belly full, smile on her face, got her Easter dress on and everything. And uh, I'm telling you, we have come a long way with Abigail. This is normal Abigail. <laughs> See what good parents we are, what, what, how, how we've shaped her and changed her. But you know, there are sort of two sides to Abigail. There's a progress that you see. I suspect there are two sides to us as well. Those that have believed in Christ. And maybe for a year, or maybe for longer, we have made progress in our journey with Christ. And so, we may be able to say, by the grace of God today, we may be able to say that, that we regularly read our Bible and that we regularly engage in prayer and that we give of our money and that we participate in Christ's work all the way around the world. Perhaps we're involved in a small group and we're committed here in this local body to serve Christ. And maybe some of us, we even gathered together last Friday night for six long, good, I mean, hours of teaching from David. That's a gracious thing. That's a good thing. And we ought to praise God for what He has done in that respect. But you know, sometimes if we are not careful, we begin to think of ourselves in terms of our good activities rather than who we are or who we were apart from Christ. And so little by little, day by day, maybe week by week or month by month, we began to sort of forget or to neglect the wonder of our salvation. We forget from where it is that we have come, how long it is, where we were at, where Christ found us, and where we are at now. And as we do that, we no longer feel the worship of Christ like we should. We no longer engage in it like we should. We forget what Paul has said, that there is nothing in my flesh, no good thing in my flesh dwells. Or as Isaiah said, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Or as Titus speaks about in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and desires. And that we were passing our days in envy and in, and, in, and in malice, and that we were hated by others and hating one another. We sort of forget where it is that we came from. And we forget that in Christ, God has placed all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, all the ways that we despise Him, all the ways that we reject Him, all the ways that we do not believe Him, that God has taken all of those and He has placed them in Christ. And Christ has died for our sins. Sometimes we forget that. And so we neglect the salvation that we have. Well, this morning I want to take Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5 and sort of show you the glory or the wonder of our salvation. And my hope this morning is as we look at these pictures of salvation, which is what they are in the grand scheme of things, as we look at what God has done for us in Christ, that it would bring us to fuller assurance of Christ, faith in Christ and greater worship of Christ, for He is worthy of our worship. 
And so this morning, I want us to look in Mark. Now, sometimes when we read the Gospels, we sometimes forget that in the first century, and particularly as we have in our Bible, that they didn't write history in the exact same way that we do. In other words, they, they sort of did things a little bit differently. It's still, it's still historical. Everything, every word of the Word of God is true. But sometimes we forget that they maybe arranged things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, edited things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that maybe is different from one writer to the next. If you look in Matthew, there'll be a different order perhaps in things than Mark. That doesn't mean that one is more true or less true. It just simply means that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, things were arranged, organized in order for these smaller stories to tell a bigger story. You say, well, what is the big story in the Gospel of Mark? Look in your Bibles, if you would. Turn back to Mark chapter 1, the very first verse, and you see the purpose, the intent of Mark's Gospel. Why is he writing? He's writing to a group of Roman believers, more than likely, and they are enduring some kind of persecution, some kind of suffering, and maybe had some doubts, maybe had some issues. And so he is writing to show them the strong Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he says in Mark chapter 1, he says, This is the beginning of the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He gives him sort of two titles. He says, This is what I'm writing about. I'm intending to show you that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would take away the sins of the world, and that that same person, Jesus of Nazareth, was the, and is the Son of God. That's the purpose that he lays out, and he sort of works that all the way. If you flip over, you don't have to if you don't want to, but if you, in, in the middle of Mark's gospel, it sort of drives to that point. And so you find in Mark chapter 8 that the disciples and Jesus are at a place called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has a question for them, and it relates to this sort of issue. Who is Jesus? And he says, who do men say that I am? And they responded to Jesus and said, well, some people say that you are Elijah. Others say that you are John the Baptist. Still others say that you are one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them the question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest of the group, said, you are the Christ. The very thing that Mark had laid out in Mark 1, 1, Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter hits the nail on the head by the, by the help of the Spirit. You are the Christ. And it still drives forward if you look toward the end of the gospel. Where does it all end? Mark chapter 15. And as Jesus dies on the cross, remember he's writing to Roman believers. Mark points out for us, that at the foot of the cross, as Jesus breathed his last, there was a Roman centurion. And what did he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. Peter gets the first part right in chapter 8. The centurion gets the last part right in Mark chapter 15. All along the way, Mark is intending to show us that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what we have when we come back to Mark 4 and 5, we have stories or vignettes that show the strong Son of God, that He is both Messiah and He is Son of God, that He is the Christ who takes away the sins of the world, and that He is the Lord. And so this morning, I want to show you those. And Mark brings both of those together here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so I want you to see two realities concerning our radical salvation. And out of that, I want you to see three implications of this radical salvation. Let's begin with two realities, two realities of our radical salvation. First of all, notice that we have a strong Savior. We have a strong Savior. You say, well, well how so? Well, Mark immediately begins and shows us that Jesus is the Lord over danger. He shows us that Jesus is the Lord over danger. Now, many of us are familiar with this story. And maybe we've read the story about Jesus calming the wind and the waves, and perhaps we've read it, or maybe we've heard it said that, you know, what this really is about is you have all these winds and waves, and the, the sea is sort of crashing around. These are the storms of life. 
And as these storms of life rage, that if you will but turn to Jesus, as the disciples fail sort of to do, but if you'll turn to Jesus and just trust him, then Jesus will calm the wind and the waves in your life. He'll take away all of the storms in your life. And that sounds pious and it may sound good, but in truth, it's wrong. It's wrong because the Bible says it's wrong. Jesus never promises a smooth ride, never says that all of the seas are going to be smooth. He never promises that in his word. But you know, experience tells us that's not right as well. That many times the storm rages. And we may turn to Jesus. And we may trust Him. But oftentimes the storm doesn't go away. And so our business fails or the depression lingers. Or perhaps the cancer wins. The storm never goes away. And Jesus is there the whole time. But I don't think that's what Mark is intending to teach us. I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit would have us to take away from it. I think the key to understanding exactly what we are to know from this passage lies in that last verse in chapter 4. If you would, look at it in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Jesus has stood up. They have cried out to Jesus, the wind, the waves. It's a serious storm, and they cry out to him and say, Teacher, do you not care? that we perish. He is asleep. And they come to Jesus. He rises up. He rebukes them for their lack of faith. And then he stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, peace, be still. But there's an interesting line. I think it's the one that unlocks the meaning of the passage and also gives a sort of an entryway into what you find in Mark chapter 5. And that is verse 41. They were filled with great fear. Filled with great fear. And said to one another, listen to what they say, Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now sometimes in our modern culture and being educated like we think we are, Sometimes skeptics will try to dismiss those miraculous things in the Bible. For example, they may dismiss things that for along, along, along lines of healing or maybe even this passage. And they, and they sort of couch it in these terms that, you know what, in the first century, they weren't educated like we were. They didn't understand things like we do. And so they didn't quite get the, that there was a natural reason for this storm. And maybe, maybe there was a natural reason for his dismissal. And, and so they just attributed that to Jesus. And it just happened to be that Jesus was there at the right time. Because we understand that the warm air rises from the Sea of Galilee and the cold air comes down from Mount Hermon and these mix together and all of a sudden you can have a violent storm and maybe just as quickly as it arose, just as quickly it dissipated. Well, I'm sure we do have more understanding than they of the natural explanations for things like that. But you, know, you don't have to be James Spann to know that when a man stands up, and speaks to the wind and the waves, and it obeys him that something is up. You don't have to really understand all the ins and outs to know that a man doesn't stand up and speak to wind and waves, and it obeys him. These were first century Jews. No doubt they had in their mind, they knew their Bible very well, they had in their mind Genesis chapter 1 perhaps where the water, the Spirit of God hovers over the water, and there's this chaos, and then God comes, and he says, let there be land, and let there be sea, and let there be, and by the word, the, the power of his word, the water responds. Or perhaps they had in their heads Psalm 89, 8 and 9. I encourage you to write that down. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule, listen, you rule the raging of the sea. This is God that does this. When its waves rise, you steal them. Or Psalm 107, verse 29, almost verbatim what Mark says in verse 41. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Who is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey Him. With the psalmist they would have cried out, This is the Lord God Almighty. That is the answer to their question. And that is the answer 
That is the demonstration that we see as Mark brings these other stories, the demoniac, the woman with the issue of blood, and Jairus' daughter, as he brings them together and shows them together, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He is Lord over danger, but not only that, he is Lord over demons. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5, if you would. Mark chapter 5, verse 3. Mark says that he lived among the tombs, speaking of the demoniac. And now circle these, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Do you hear it? No one could bind him. No chain could hold him. No one, no man could subdue him. That is, until the Lord over the demons arrived. You know, they ask him, they say, would you not send us into the abyss? Would you please send us into those pigs over there? They're asking, the demons asking Jesus to do with them, to be gracious toward them, to permit them to go into the swine. Sometimes we think, you know what, Jesus is a real gentleman. He does exactly what they ask. They ask to go in the pigs. He sends them into them. But you know, if you read the Old Testament, you read Jonah, you hear as he was going down in the sea, he cried out and said, they said, I go down to Sheol. I go down to hell, to the abyss. Many of them thought, as the bottom, thought of the bottom of the sea as the entryway into hell. And Jesus sends them into the swine, and the swine go down to the bottom of the sea. It is as if Jesus sends the demons to hell. He's not only the Lord over demons. Mark shows us that he's Lord over disease. If you look there in verse 25, it says that there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all she had. She had no more money, but was no better and grew worse. No one could heal her. That is, until the Lord over disease arrived. Mark indicates that when she touched him, that, that Jesus felt the power go out from him. It is not... There is, there is a construction that could have been used that would indicate that the power came from God and went through Jesus into the woman. But that is not what Mark says. He says that the power went out from him as if Jesus Christ was the source of the power. The power that healed came from him. And so he's Lord over disease. But perhaps nothing more difficult than the last and that is that he is Lord over death. Verse 35 says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? There's no use, they said. Mark 39, if you skip down to Mark 5, 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus meant by that that she appears to be so right now, but she will rise. She is, not, she is not dead, but sleeping. And what did they do? They laughed at him. You see, it's as if Mark chapter 5 is an answer to the question that the disciples ask in the boat in Mark 4, 41, the very end. Who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? No one could bind him. No chains could hold him. No men could subdue him. No amount of money could cure her. No cure could be found. No physician could heal her. No point in coming. There is no way that a man can raise another person from the dead. It's not possible. No one can do these things except God and God alone. You say, well, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with me and 
you here today. These stories are demonstrations in the grand scheme of things of the very power of God in our lives as well. That we were like the disciples on the boat tossed to and fro, like the demoniac out of our mind destroying ourselves and one another. That we were like the woman with a disease that could not be healed and we were like the daughter of Jairus. We were dead. In fact, doesn't Paul use that very language in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? He says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. Not that you were almost dead, not that you were quite sick, not that you were on life support, but you were, I was, apart from Christ, dead in trespasses and sins. Some have said, well, you know, we might illustrate it like this, that there was uh, a point in time in which we were sort of in the sea and we were drowning and we were about to die and, and, and Jesus was on the shore with a, a life preserver and sort of, he throws it out and it's right near us and, and all that we need to do as we are flailing about is reach out and grab that life preserver and we can have life. But the more accurate illustration of, Mar, uh, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. It's not that we were flailing about on the surface of the water, but that we were stone cold dead on the bottom of the sea. And Jesus Christ dove in, picked our lifeless corpse off of the bottom of the sea, brought us to the shore, and breathed his very life into ours. Only God, only God can save. Salvation is only possible through Christ. That's what Mark illustrates for us here in chapter 4 and chapter 5, that there is no other way to be saved, not good works, not a good preacher, not a great church. There is no salvation in any other name except Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who is Lord over danger, demons, disease, and Lord over death. We have a strong Savior. But not only do we have a strong Savior, we have a compassionate Savior. We have a compassionate Savior. You know, we look at these stories here in Mark chapter 5, and we think, you know what? Of course, we know Jesus, we know his character, we know what he's like, and so, it, of course, Jesus is going to come to the demoniac and bring out the demons. Of course, he's going to go into and touch the woman and heal her disease. Of course, Jesus is going to bring death, bring life from death. But I want to, if you, if you would, I want you to imagine that you were a first century Jew. And you were in the boat with Jesus. He had calmed the wind and the waves. You look around and say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then you pull up on the shore of the Decapolis. Now the Decapolis is Gentile territory. It's unclean. You remember in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples as they're going out. And he says, if someone rejects the kingdom of God after you preach it to them, you know, here's what you do. You take your sandals off of your feet and you gather them together and you clap them together and you shake the dust off of your feet. He picks that up. Jesus picks that up from what Jews would normally do as they were coming back perhaps from Gentile territory, and as they entered into the Holy Land, oftentimes they would take off their sandals and they would clap them together. And they would shake the dust off their feet. Why? Because even the dirt in Gentile land was unclean. And they did not want to defile in any way the Holy Land of God. And so you're in Gentile territory, and you pull up to tombs. Now, that may not be that big a deal. Where I, I, I came from a, a rather country place before here, and we had something called Decoration Day. I don't know if you know what Decoration Day is. Some of you are shaking your head. You do, all right? So I could go out of my church on Sunday, on a particular Sunday, and literally there would be people eating fried chicken in the graveyard. They're having a family gathering in the graveyard. It's no big deal. It's decoration. We decorate the graves. 
Well, I assure you Jews did not because the tombs were unclean. It was a place that was defiled by the corpses. So you're in Gentile land. You pull up to a graveyard, tombs. You look over, and along the hillside, there are swine, pigs. Jews would not touch them. They certainly would not raise them. And then comes a man screaming at the top of his lungs. Mark describes that he has an unclean spirit. You catch the theme. Not only that, but Mark indicates as he go on later in the story that eventually he was sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus and he was clothed at that point. Which implies that there was a point which he, when he was not clothed. Now, can you imagine when the person comes out screaming and they are naked? I don't know if that's unclean, but it is weird. It's awkward. But you know, you gotta. I, I read this story and I, and I think of my wife. And uh, I'm sorry, not the uncleanness, sorry. <laughs> She's very clean, all right? She's very clean. Top notch hygiene, all right? Um, she's ultra clean, in fact. So we go uh, on vacation and, or on a long trip or something of that nature. And uh, I wish you could see the scene when we have to stop at a service station with three small kids. And uh, she's, don't touch that. So back away from that. Stop, stop. No, 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 you can't do that. You ain't nasty. And so the only way I believe that the kids could satisfy her cleanliness would be to sort of like levitate in there and use the restroom and then levitate back out. And then afterwards, we're still going to get the baby wipes and we're going to go all down, all over the face. It's unclean. I imagine that's precisely Peter's reaction. That not only did he know these things, he just felt unclean. But, you know, he follows Jesus, and that's a good thing. And so... You know, maybe, maybe Peter's thinking that, you know, Jesus, he, he's led us here. He's he, he just calmed the wind the waves. He's got a pretty good thing going there. So maybe Jesus is going to go in, and, and he's going to go to this Gentile territory, and he's going to lead some upstanding, good businessman, community leader. They're going to come to faith in Christ and change that whole community, and out comes the naked man screaming. Not exactly what Peter had in mind. Not the kind of person. I doubt that Peter had in mind that Jesus would save. But you know, that's precisely the kind of people that Jesus seeks, is it not? He goes after the unclean. He goes after those who are filthy, those who are deceitful and desperately wicked in their heart above all things. He goes after the unclean. That's exactly what we see in Mark chapter 5. And as you continue and you see the next story of the woman with the issue of blood, it is not just that she is sick. It's not just that she has an illness. She has a condition which if you read Leviticus, you read the Old Testament, you will find out that this sickness has rendered her perpetually unclean for 12 long years so that she could not participate. She could not be involved along with the people of God, in the presence of God, in the worship of God. She was cut off from society. She was unclean. And when Jesus goes in, He takes the hand of the little girl. He is not just being foolish. He is being unclean as he takes the hand of the little girl and brings her back to life. You say, well, what does that have to do with me and you? It, it has to do in this way that the common thread in Mark chapter 5, in all these stories, is not just desperation, it's isolation. It's not just the impossibility of it all, it's the impurity of it all. It's not just, can God do this? It's, will God do this? Will he reach across? The common thread in Mark chapter 5 
is ritual impurity. But you know, there's a greater common thread that unites us and every person that's ever existed in all of humanity. The common thread in all of humanity is not ritual impurity, it is spiritual impurity. That all of us apart from Christ are unclean. That all of us apart from Christ are separated from the presence of God. We are not allowed to be in the people of God. We are not allowed to enjoy the very presence of God because we are unclean. We have been cut off. And like the woman with the issue of blood, we are separated until Jesus is able and willing to touch us. You know, we, we need to be careful when we read Mark chapter 5. Because we may read it and we may forget the cross. Because you see in Mark chapter 5, you see him speaking and commanding and touching. And that is the way that the spiritual impurity is taken away. But that is not ultimately the way that Christ has dealt with our impurity. That is not ultimately the way that he has dealt with our defilement. You know, the truth is, he, he's really like that demoniac in the end of the story. If you look at the end of Mark, you see that Jesus is just like that man. He's outside the city, among the tombs. He is shouting incomprehensible things. He is cut off from the people of God. And that is how Jesus deals with our sin. How is it that Jesus has dealt with our disease? It is, as Isaiah says, by bearing our infirmities. How is it that Jesus has dealt with our own spiritual death? It is by dying his own death in our place. And so, because Jesus has done these things, we, he is clothed in our filth, and we, therefore, are clothed in His righteousness, so that when God looks at you, He does not see the pornography that you viewed a long time ago. He does not see the extramarital or the premarital sex. He does not see the bitterness and the hatred that oftentimes creeps up in our heart. Or to make it more generic, whatever sin you struggle with, He does not see the sin that so easily besets all of us. God sees, for those that are in Christ, God sees the very righteousness of His own Son. Paul said, for our sake, for our sake, brothers and sisters, for our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be the very righteousness of God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How has He done it? By becoming a curse for us. So therefore, there is no sin too grievous. There is no past or reputation too checkered. There is no mistake too costly. Jesus has paid it all. You say, but you don't know what I've done. Jesus paid it all. But you don't know. You don't know my past. Jesus paid it all. You don't know the way that I struggle and the way that I fought. Jesus paid it all. That's a radical salvation. It's a radical thing for someone who is able and willing to do it. But that is what God in Christ has done on our behalf. It's a radical salvation. And very quickly, I want to point out some radical, radical implications. Some things that flow from this radical salvation. I don't know about you, but sometimes I become troubled, frustrated, ashamed, 
of my slow progress in being a disciple of Jesus. And there are ways that I fall short and ways that I don't quite measure up to what I know I ought to be. And I hear the voice of Satan that is described in Revelation chapter 12 as the accuser of the brethren. So who do you think you are? You're going to preach for these people? You're going to teach the Word of God? Don't you remember what you did? Don't you remember what you did this morning? And the truth is, I do remember. Until I remember that He does not. That as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. From us. That in the promise of the new covenant, He says that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Not that God has amnesia. Not that God is not able to remember. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He can remember all things. But God chooses not to remember our sin. He puts them away from His mind. I will remember their sins no more. I don't know what troubles your conscience. I, I don't know what, what, where you struggle, but I do know this, that if you find yourself there, the answer is not, you know what, I'm going to determine to do better. I'm going to pull myself up. I'm going to make a better show of things. I'm going to solve that. The first, the last, and the thing all in between that we are to do is to run to Christ is to trust fully in His blood, in His righteousness, and His perfect death and life on our behalf. That is the place that we go. There is a song that we sing, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing for sin can atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll overcome. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We trust Him fully. And we worship Him passionately. We trust Him fully. And we worship Him passionately. I've preached the essence of this sermon on two different occasions before now. Once I preached in America, and the other time I preached in a place called Boklakong, South Africa. Boklakong, translated in the Sotho language, the native language there, means hell. It's a place of extreme poverty. It's a place of rampant drug and alcohol abuse. Missionaries there told me that in that particular community that the AIDS rate runs somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. And I don't know if it's cultural differences or, or what. I understand that there are different ways that we worship, different ways that we engage. But the response to both, in both contexts is interesting to me, the contrast between them. In America, it's sort of, you know, that's, that's a good sermon, preacher. I appreciate that. Thank you. Did you see that game last night? Whereas in South Africa, it was amen and hallelujah and tears flowing down and hands going up. And again, there are cultural differences, but I can't help but think that some of it, some of the different response is accounted for 
in the fact that they see themselves that way. They see themselves as unclean. Because we don't have that kind of age rate, and we're not. Because we don't have that kind of poverty or that kind of drug and alcohol abuse on a rampant scale, like we're, we're not. We are just as unclean. Anyone apart from Christ stands in need of the cleansing blood that he shed on Calvary, and nothing else will do it. And so, we need to understand that when we look at these stories here in Mark chapter 5, these pictures that contribute to a, a greater picture that one day we too were out of our minds. We too were destructive toward ourselves. That we too once had a disease that no one could cure. That we too once were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it was only, it was only when the loving kindness of our God appeared that we are saved. Forgetting those things, our prayers become more formal than heartfelt. Our witness becomes more forced than natural. And our worship becomes cold rather than passionate. We sang at the beginning of the service that the rocks will cry out if we do not. May it not be said of people redeemed by the blood of God's own Son that rocks would praise more than we. Andrew Fuller said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is an almighty Savior. <laughs>